Anybody ever been to a Sadie Hawkins dance? Ever been invited? Anybody been invited to a Sadie Hawkins dance? We got one person? Two? How many times? More than once? Twice? I think. Yeah. Any, any ladies invite guys to a Sadie Hawkins Very bold of you. Very bold. No, that's good. That's fun. Yeah, I, had, I went, I think, once in high school and once in college. Um, when I was in college, I was, going, I was working during the summer. Um, I was involved in a ministry with Campus Crusade for Christ in Newport Beach, California, down in Southern California. And I was um, working for a boatyard. Uh, they called me Barnacle Ron. Just to, I did. I just scraped barnacles off the bottom of boats. That's mostly what I did. Um, and anyway, this gal asked me to a Sadie Hawkins dance. So um, her name, I, I don't remember much about her. Her name was Marsha. Southern California. It wasn't Brady. It wasn't her last name. Um, but we went, and what we went to was it was uh, Hollywood High School. And this, the person who was singing at the time was performing was Amy Grant. And she was brand new, and all the guys had crushes on her. She was real cute. And she was promoting a new song that her boyfriend, Gary Chapman, had written, whom she would marry, called My Father's Eyes. Now, the song isn't a great song melodically, but... Uh, but there, there was a message to it that was really cool, the whole idea of seeing everything through God's eyes and meditating on that as you thought about that song. And you know, that whole idea of looking through the lens of the Lord is very important, and it ties specifically into what we're going to talk about as we continue on our sermon series today called Changing Happy. Now, remember, Changing Happy, from a scholarly standpoint, they would call this the sermon, Jesus' Sermon on the Plain in the book of Luke. And in the book of Matthew, it's called the Sermon on the Mount. The same sermon. It's Jesus's, um, it's his keynote address. And we have excerpts in both places and other places in scripture of what he would say on those occasions. He would apparently adapt it to the situation and the people that he was speaking to. Now, what we learned the first week in this whole thing is that, that what Jesus has to say is counterintuitive, it's countercultural, it's radical, and it's revolutionary. People want happiness, but we live in the land of unhappy. We are not happy, and that's why we're looking for happiness. Happiness has a problem. Happiness is conditional. So if I have a job, I'm happy. If I don't have a job, I'm unhappy. But what, what Jesus offers is more than that. He offers blessedness. And blessedness is the joy of his presence and knowing that you're walking with him and doing what you should so that even if you suffer for doing right, for taking a stand for him, that you can have this joy that goes beyond happiness and will last with you all the way through heaven and beyond. So then the natural response for us is to say, we've got to take people that are in this land of unhappiness and take them to the land beyond happiness. How do we do that? Well, we come in with our guns blazing and we say, we've got the answer. You don't. Let us straighten you out on this deal. And that's what we do a lot of times. And yet, that's not what we're supposed to do. Jesus says it's countercultural. It's counterintuitive. What you do is you come in and you love them into the land beyond happiness. You love even those that don't love you. You love even your enemies. And so that puts us in a position where today we come in and we say, well, if we're doing that, we must be pretty special. And we're pretty good, so we probably are better than they are. And we kind of look at ourselves and we realize that we're a little bit, we've got a little bit, we're kind of a cut above. And now he's going to come back and say, no, you're not. 
you aren't looking at things the way I am. Last week we saw that we're to love them as God loved them. This week we're going to see we're to look at them as God looks at them. We're to look at ourselves as God looks at us. And to do that, we're to look through the lens of the Lord. How do we look through the lens of the Lord? Well, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 6, verses 37 through 42. We'll start with the first two verses, verses 37 through 38, to see people how he sees them. And let's read that um, chapter 6, verses 37 through 38 um, to start with. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Is this vintage Jesus or what? Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Do not judge. Now, here's the question for you. Can you not judge? You know, think about it. Can you not judge? Like, if I said to you, I am not a judgmental person. Has a judgment been made? So you get yourself in a whole lot of problems when you say don't judge. You have to kind of clarify, what do you mean by this? And what he's really getting at is attitude. And that will become more clear as we go along. In other words, don't have a judgmental, condescending, self-righteous attitude towards other people, especially those that don't know Jesus Christ. Um. But let's understand this. There's some implications to it. First of all, there are times when Jesus asks us to do things, and so they, they aren't really judgments as much as Jesus says, this is what you're supposed to do in certain cases. So let's take one that's fairly safe. Let's take adultery. If you take adultery, nobody wants their spouse to be committing adultery against them. So in that sense, everybody's against adultery except the person who's doing it, okay? That's kind of how it works. Uh, Jesus is against adultery. If we go to Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says he's against adultery. He says that it's wrong for a man to even lust for a woman, so he would be against something like pornography too. So if you have a friend who is involved in pornography or involved in adultery, okay, it's kind of like your friend is sleeping on the railroad tracks and the train is coming. Wake them up. You know what I'm saying? Wake them up. We're responsible to love them enough to go to them and talk to them. And what's interesting, at the end of this passage today, we'll see that God does want us to confront people that are having problems in obvious areas. Where we run into problems, so it's not saying we don't judge and we don't, you know, we have to make evaluations and judgments in life. And if Jesus says something's wrong, then we need to do it. We just need to do it in the right way. Okay? Now, here's where it gets sticky. There's a lot of gray area out there. There's things that the Bible doesn't completely address. And we get in problems, like even in church, we can say, how often should we take communion? When is Jesus coming back? How should we dress for church? The Bible does not address those issues. Now, there are principles that we make decisions on what we're going to do, but it isn't black and white. There are educational things. There are political things. There are, um, you know, entertainment areas. I mean, there are extremes where we can say, yeah, obviously that's not right. Or, or right, But there's a lot of things in between there that, you know, our people have to make their own decisions. And sometimes we just have to say that we agree to disagree. Here's a classic one. You ready? If you have a child and you're young parents, 
you have to decide where those kids are going to go to school. Where are you going to send them? Are they going to go to homeschool? Are they going to go to public school? Are they going to go to private school? Or are you just going to let them do whatever they do? And maybe they're like Abraham Lincoln and it works out. Huh? What do you do? All these decisions, overwhelming. What does the Bible say? Does it have anything to say about it? Well, yeah, in principles it does. You sit down, you pray with your spouse, and you look through the different perspectives, and you talk to the different people. You have to make a decision. You've got to come down on one of these things. You have to. You don't have a choice. So you make a decision based on principles, but, and you may like the decision you made very much, and you may promote the decision you make. That's okay. But by no means look down your nose on another person who made another decision. See what I'm saying? It's, it's, it's just the attitude. Uh, what was right for you? In some of these areas, it might be right for you to do one and right for them to do another because God is directing you there, maybe even just to reach a particular person in that area that, the, that, that God has set up for you to reach. So this is the whole attitude is that you, you, know, you don't look down on people. You don't have this self-righteous, condescending kind of attitude. All right? And then... Um, you get to this next area and he talks about condemnation and it helps you understand a little bit more. In other words, you don't condemn the person. You don't condemn them to hell type of thing. And the language that's used here gives a a great analogy that Daryl Bach uh, talks about. Um, He talks about the difference of acquitting somebody and amnesty, acquittal and amnesty. So at the end of their presidency, a president can choose to grant amnesty to a person in prison. And a lot of people get upset with that because they say, what right does, that, does he have to pronounce this guy innocent when we know they're at least partly guilty? Well, we aren't understanding the terms. To acquit somebody is to exonerate them of their crime and to pronounce them innocent. To grant amnesty says they're still guilty. By grace, I'm allowing them out of prison. I'm letting them off the hook. You see the difference? Very important for us. Everybody in this room and everybody who has ever lived before God has never been acquitted of your crimes. We are all convicted and guilty of all the evil thoughts in our hearts. Amnesty is by grace God has set us free. You understand? How could we do less for another person? We grant them amnesty. Now, amnesty for us comes as we surrender our lives to Christ. He grants us amnesty. But nevertheless, we need to be forgiving of other people. And and he'll move us to there uh, very soon. But there's one other thing I want to say that pops up in this. Is people say, well, you know, how do we then, you know, especially in a church setting, what do we do? You know, if somebody doesn't respond correctly, we don't condemn them. But, um, and of course, we're supposed to be forgiving, which we'll get to. But is there, or do we do anything? Well, have you read the Scarlet Letter? You know, that's kind of, people think about things like the Scarlet Letter. You put an A on an adulteress. You know, or you, you blame somebody. You really, you do something, you punish the person in some way. Well, that may have happened in extreme circumstances, but that's not what Jesus prescribes. What Jesus says in Matthew 18 is that you're supposed to just go to the person in love without a condescending attitude. And you talk to them, and you try to work through it with them. And if they're not responsive, you bring another person. And if they're not responsive, you bring them before the leadership of the church. And then at some point, Jesus says that they become to you as um, 
pagans and tax gatherers, which is to say that you love everybody, you still treat them well and be are polite to them, but you disassociate from them. They're just not part of you anymore. Now, why do you do that? Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5, is that as they go into the world, they go into the darkness, and as they go into the darkness, they desire the light that they might come back. So you only do it with your whole intent is to restore them and bring them back. But what else can you do? You don't punish them in any way, but you do that. But listen to what Paul says here. And this is insightful for us with this whole thing on judgment. Um, In verse 12 of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says, What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? If people don't know Jesus and they aren't following his law, then you would expect them not to behave like that. But he says, are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. And he's talking about a guy who was in, had sexual sin in his life. And he said he's not responsive. He needs to leave. But he can always come back whenever he's ready. And that's what we're praying he will do. We don't do anything beyond that. Did you know that I think everybody has a scarlet letter? When you study the business world and you study the uh, entertainment industry or athletics or politics, they all blackball each other. They punish each other all the time. They talk about each other. They say bad things. They do stuff all the time. But then we do something wrong and they're all on us. That's not fair, right? You know what? It is fair. Because we, they didn't claim to be moral. And when they do, we know they don't mean it. A lot of times. But we did. We said that we're going to be moral and we're going to love people unconditionally. And so we have no right to do anything beyond asking them to leave and then taking them back with open arms when they do. You see the difference? It's all about attitude and it's about the way you do it. Yes, sometimes you have to discipline. But even then, you do it in a loving way, not in a condescending, self-righteous way and the, the doors are open to return when you're ready. So it comes down to forgiveness, right? And that's what he talks about next. And he says something about forgiveness that's really cool. It's the same thing we talked about last week. When you do something nice for another person, guess who benefits the most in the end? You benefit. He says, you forgive somebody, you'll experience forgiveness in a special way yourself. And he gives an illustration that probably doesn't make a lot of sense to us today, but was very, you know, made a lot of sense in those days. And I didn't know what he was talking about at first. But what he's describing here is like you went to, you know, the farmer's market in Jerusalem and um, the guy would get down, he'd squat down with a piece of corn and he'd, he'd take that corn and he'd rub it, rub it, rub it. He'd get it all rubbed up and then he'd put it in this vessel and he'd shake it. And anyway, he, he'd basically create grain for you right before your eyes. And then he would go to pour it in your lap. And when I heard that, I thought, you know, pour it in your lap. I mean, I've had milkshakes poured in my lap. Not a good deal, right? I mean, this doesn't sound like a blessing. But it was because he'd have uh, overflowing grain and you didn't have pockets in those days. So you would take your robe and you'd pull it up and make a pocket. And then he'd pour it in and it'd be overflowing. He'd give you so much. And so the basic idea is to the degree that you do nice things to others, And to the degree that you forgive others, you're going to experience that in your own life. And so we should do it. It's a good thing to do. We need to forgive other people. Not always easy, but it needs to be done. I like what Lewis Smedes says about forgiveness. He says, to forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover that the prisoner is you. To forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover 
that the prisoner was you. And so what we're saying in this, this kind of foundational section, these first two verses, is that um, God, you know, we, we, we have to judge people and to a degree. We have to make judgments in life. But God does not want us to be condescending. He does not want us to be self-righteous. He does not want us to have a judgmental, con- condemning attitude towards others, especially those outside the church. Um, he wants us to love them, and he wants us to forgive them, and if we need to confront them, that we do it in the right way. So the first thing he talks about is our attitude towards you know, our, you know, thinking that we're better than others. The next thing he's going to talk about is what if um, the person um, becomes a leader in our movement? So somebody now is a follower of Christ, and they become a leader. How should we look at those people? You know, the tendency is to kind of put them up on a pedestal, and he has some words for that. See leaders how he sees them, verses 39 through 40. And he gives parables. Um, he also told them this parable. And does this sound familiar? Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A student is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. So the first one, fairly obvious. If the person that's leading doesn't know where they're going, guess where they're going to lead you? Not a very good place. And if you don't know where you're going, you're both going to end up into a lot of trouble. The second one doesn't make as much sense, but it does when we understand that they train people primarily through discipleship. So they'd get them in small groups, like Jesus was doing with his group. And you'd have a rabbi or teacher. You wouldn't learn from multiple sources. You would learn from that one person. So everything you knew was the sum total of what they taught you. And you would be them, so to speak. And you would go along and represent them. And what Jesus is saying, therefore, there's a couple things, but what he's saying right off the top is be careful who you follow. Be careful that you're not following people that don't know where they're going. Because if you are, then you certainly don't know where you're going. And it can lead to destruction. Like James Jones, remember that, Jim Jones? And the whole crisis there where they went down to Guyana and they they gave people Kool-Aid and they killed all these people because he was blind and the people following him were blind. So don't do that. Be careful who you follow. Be careful you know what you're doing. Another thing is the person that you follow is the person you become like. So be very careful of that. It's really interesting. You know, we, we are looking for somebody to follow, and I think God has made us to follow him. And if we don't follow him, we're going to follow somebody else, and we may follow the wrong person. And often it's the person who, you know, talks themselves up and tells you all the great things about them and then puts everybody else down. And they have all the answers for you, so you don't have to research it for yourself. Got to watch out for people like that. Uh, Jesus says, because you'll become just like them, and you won't become like Jesus. The kind of person you want to follow is like the Apostle Paul, who said this about himself in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. He said, follow me as I follow the example of Jesus, as I follow the example of Christ. You want to follow a person where it's very obvious that that person is following Jesus. And they can back up what they say in Scripture, and they can answer your questions, and they can point you to Scriptures. They don't have all the answers, but they can point you to places where you can look and wrestle with it yourself. And that's what you need to mostly do, is make sure that you're interacting with God on your own. And you're studying the Bible on your own, and you're learning and growing, and learning from different people, too, and not just following one person. So be careful of that. And then the last thing he does is he talks about himself, you know, about ourselves. He says, you know, see yourself how he sees you. And this is some other vintage Jesus passage. I mean, some of these are just classic. You hear them all the time. 
uh, this illustration is a, is a favorite uh, of a lot of people. Verses 41 through 42. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when you, you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. What does he mean by these? Well, one word, Greek word karphos, is the word for, it's, it's like a flake. It could be the flake of wood, chafe, or straw. But the word for plank is the word dakos, which means a beam that holds up a building. A beam doesn't fit in your eye. It was intended to be humorous. You know, it's kind of like you take a beam and you put it in somebody's eye. What happens? You either kill the person or they get up and their face is all bruised and distorted and he's trying to walk up and speck, get the speck out of your eye, you know. And so this is the whole idea that he's saying it's, it's not possible. It's a literary device that we talked about last week. What do we call it? Hyperbole. It's hyperbole. It's an, it, it's an intentional exaggeration. It's like me saying to you, you're driving me insane. That does not mean that I will go and check into a mental health institute after church today. It just means that you're really frustrating me, right? And Jesus, in a very colorful way, is basically saying, before you go and talk to anybody, your brother in Christ even, about sin and confront them, make sure you've got your act together first. That's what he's saying. Now, it used to be that companies would hire people primarily for their IQ, for their knowledge and for their giftedness. Today, we're hearing a lot about their EQ, their emotional stability. In fact, I read recently that some churches are actually, um, they're actually hiring, they're actually, when they're hiring pastors, they're giving them tests, candidates, on their EQ. And the reason we're so concerned about EQ is because we're tired of having people that may be gifted and intelligent, but they're insecure, they're rude, they're abrasive, they're, you know, they're, they're just very defensive, they're narcissistic, and they, they create a toxic work environment, right? So we would rather have people that have giftedness, but mostly are, are, are nice people that we can work with that are emotionally stable. We should be secure in Christ. We should be emotionally stable people. We should know ourselves. We should know our strengths and weaknesses. Do you want to know yourself? Tim Keller, in his recently published book on prayer, one of the things he says in that book is that if you want self-knowledge, it starts in your relationship with, with Jesus. You know, if you spend time praying to him and asking him, who am I and how can I serve you? And you study the Bible alongside of that, and you're honest with what God's teaching you. That's because he's the one who made you, right? He's the one who has all the answers. You want to know yourself, spend time with him. Ask him how he can best, you can best serve him. And be honest with what you're learning as you are honestly uh, uncovering your life before him. And he'll teach you. Um, it's hard sometimes, but we do need to know ourselves. I've been working in this area in my own life, and I'll give you, I think, a fairly safe example. Periodically, I'll have people come to me, undoubtedly with beams in their eyes. And, uh, and they'll say something like, you sure talk a lot which translated means you talk too much. Um, and I know that. I mean, I, it hurts my feelings because I'm working on it, and I think I've improved. So you imagine what I used to be like. Um, <laughs> don't laugh too hard. Somebody's else over. Uh, um, but, but, you know, so, so that's, that's an area that I'm growing in, all right? So I'm trying to improve in. But when they say that to me, it's like, yeah, it's not the first time somebody's told me that. I know I have some problems. There. you got some suggestions. How can I improve? And people have helped me through the years. But... 
here's the deal. What I'm learning, it's still not always an easy lesson, and sometimes new things come up, and sometimes it's you know, silly stuff and you know it's not true, but you try to listen anyway. But, but here's the deal. If we all say that we're sinners, right? Then why does it bother us when somebody comes up and tells us so? Why should it even bother us when somebody tell, points out a sin in our life? If we know we're sinners, we should expect that. And then we look to improve it. And so we should be humble and broken enough to be able to not get upset about those things and to be able to be honest about who we are before God. And then when we're in that state, then we're ready for the next step, which is when we're broken and contrite and realize that we're no better than any other person, then we're in the position where we're ready to go and talk to another person that has a problem. And we're ready to take this back out. So that's, yeah, that's basically what we're being told um, to do today. A lot of it's just about the right attitude. Now, there's a lot of application that can come with this today. So I don't want you to be overwhelmed. But maybe just pick one thing that connects with you. Here's some questions that may help you. One, is there anyone whom you have not granted amnesty? I'm not saying that they haven't sinned. I'm not saying that you have to say that all the horrible things they did to you and to others in your family, you know, just you're going to, it never happened. I'm not asking you to acquit them, but can you grant them amnesty? That may be hard. Forgiveness is hard. It's a process. It can take a long time. It may be several times during the day you have to stop and say, boy, I've just gotten upset with them again. I need to forgive them again. But over a period of time, as you continue to just by faith ask God to give you that forgiveness, it will come. And it's amazing the blessing that that will be, primarily for you. Are you in a feud over differences, not clear biblical teachings? It may be on something political. It may be something that's um, you know, educational. It could be even theological. It could be any number of things. Get over those things. Learn to agree to disagree and mend those broken fences. Who or what might you follow more than God? Might it be a speaker that you like a lot? Uh, could it be a talk show host? Could it be a news network? Could it be a book? Could it be any number of things? Your teacher, uh, parents. Well, that's okay. Um, <laughs> now, what, what might it be that you're struggling in following? And, and just try to, try to step back from it. Maybe not listen to them for a week. Or um, whatever a person says, make sure that you check it with the Bible. And if you're having trouble finding what they say with the Bible in terms of principles and so forth, come and tell me, I'll give you the answers. Um, no. <laughs> but I can, I'm more than willing to help point you to passages that you can, you know, because we have to wrestle with these things. They're not always black and white. But we want the shortcut. We need to be careful of that and not just follow anybody because we end up following them blindly. And the blind lead the blind. Um, here's another one. What are your weaknesses, shortcomings, and natural sins? That's a fun one. Um, if you really want to know, ask your family and closest friends. I'm fortunate that I have some that will even volunteer that for me. <laughs> um, and here's another hard one, and it's this. Who do you need to confront? Because there may, in fact, be somebody in your life that does need to be confronted. And if you do it, just make sure you do it in the right way.
If you do not yet know the Lord, we would like to encourage you to start there. Uh, it's ABCs of salvation. A, admit that you're a sinner in need of salvation. B, believe that um, Jesus has died on the cross for you and risen from the grave. And C, choose to follow Christ and place your faith in him alone. By the way, uh, Amy Grant stopped looking through her father's eyes. She got a divorce from her husband and life fell apart. But she came to town recently to do a concert. And I thought about it. I thought, you know, I wonder how many of us have forgiven her. She seems to be getting things together. I need to forgive her. I, I think I have. But sometimes it's funny how we can forgive people we don't, you know, get upset with and hold grudges against people we don't even know. But I thought about that. I thought of that old analogy, though, that father's eyes. And I remember when we were kids, we would take my parents' glasses at the table sometimes, at the kitchen table, and we'd try them on. And boy, did we look dorky. And they looked even dorkier, you know, because if you don't have the right prescription, everything looks distorted. I think spiritually speaking, God's prescription glasses are the same for all of his children. And if we look through his lens, when we look through the lens of the Lord, we see things the way that we're supposed to. And things make a whole lot more sense. And that's what he's asking us to do. Join me in a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for um, making things so clear to us in such amazing ways. And we are, we are grateful for that. Uh, there's a lot of things we don't know and can't know because you're just so great and beyond us. But we thank you for simplifying things to the point where we can make practical applications. And I pray that each of us would respond as you would lead us today. In your name we pray. Amen.